0: Welcome to Hot Plate, a post foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate Zoo noses, super tasters, diets, and craftsmanship.
1: Hi, Joshna. Hello. How are you doing? Nice to see your face. I am great. How are you? I'm fine. We are officially in uh, week four, right? Is for this me, week my, four? For me, my 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 isolation is. weeks crossover on Fridays, and so this is now we're two days into week four of our uh, of our uh, quarantine. Uh, yeah, I feel like the the crazy is starting to really sort of reveal itself a bit, right? In yourself or in the world? In, in myself and in what I'm sensing, just on comments on social media, like people are really hitting the wall, as it would be. Yeah, I. It's different. I am the only one around here, so I think it's a bit, perhaps, a different scenario. If if this place was teeming with children who are who are now sweetly desperate to go back to school. Right? Oh, oh, how things have changed for the children. I had a video chat yesterday, and I was like, do you want to go back to school? She was like, I want to go back to school so bad. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. (laughs) How are you over there? I'm fine.
0: I'm still craving pizza. Oh, right. And uh, it's interesting, because we did have that conversation in the previous podcast about how safe it is to order food. Your takeout, right? But I... Well, you know, I'm just not comfortable with a third-party company handling yeah. my food. And I feel like going out to pick up takeout is an unnecessary trip mm, for adventure me. out, yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do my groceries once every two weeks. And anything above and beyond that seems excessive. And, so, and we did our two-week shop a few days ago, but it was so big, obviously, that putting a, a frozen pizza in the mix just seemed gratuitous. So. Right. Give me another two weeks. All and, right, uh,
1: we'll check and- in again. I love it. <laughs> and man, oh man, when you sink your teeth into that bite, it's gonna uh, be good.
0: So, did you read this article I sent you?
1: This mega piece from yeah. the Guardian. Uh, from the Guardian, I did. Um, and I want to. I want to know what your response is to it because I. Uh, it's like I have. I had my own really mega response to it, but I'd love to know how it landed with you. You did.
0: For me, I would say the response was overwhelm and just a a need to research further and better understand the situation. But just for some context for our listeners who haven't read the article. Yes, thank you. It is about coronavirus and what might be behind it. So coronavirus is, I learned a word. I love learning words. Uh A zoo
1: knows. Zuno's is amazing, right? Yeah. I knew you'd love it when I read that. Yes.
0: <laughs> so that's a disease that's passed on from animals to humans. So you know, it could range anything from like salmonella yep. to something like HIV. Yes. And obviously coronavirus is one of these. That's it. Uh, as, as was SARS. Mm-hmm. And so this article is examining the fact that these have become a lot more prevalent in the past few years Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because it starts off talking about these wet markets in china which are these Mm -hmm. markets my understanding is you can buy both live and dead animals in these markets they also i think do at least the fish i think they do kill on site i don't know if they also do butchering i have never been to a wet market they
1: definitely do butchering and it is i remember being there in both mainland china and hong kong watching these meat these butchers essentially just have cuts of meat out there right just in my mind the public health bells were all going off about how things have to be stored and held and all right yeah And just to see that just the vibe and the story and the practice is just a really different one uh, over there and so when i was thinking about this wet market thing too thinking do we have an equivalent here of right, a wet market and to a certain degree some sections of the St. Lawrence market in Toronto would be right similar considered wet markets mm-hmm. um, but farmers markets are not completely although when I did research they did say that produce sometimes was included there yes right in wet market stuff but generally speaking our farmers markets are pretty dry markets mm-hmm Right. And whatever the meat is, it's like it's frozen, vac sealed. Like there's really there's no fresh meat. And if it's whatever else it is, it's like uh, cured sausages and things like that. Right.
0: How cool that you've been to one.
1: Yeah. It do was. You, oh, my God. Do you remember what I it was,
0: smelled like? That's um sort of the first was I thing. smelling that I men? Was, mm.
1: No, I wasn't oh, smelling men. Oh, that's Sadly. That, and that was I remember that because I was like, man, if there's one place I could smell something it yeah. will be here, right? I went to one in Bangkok and I went to uh, Hong Kong and China.
0: It seems regardless like an overwhelming experience. Yes. From all and wonderful. aspects. Mm-hmm. All
1: yeah, totally. Mega because you really confront life. Oh, in fact, I was just at one in Mexico City. Mm. And we watched these dudes skinning some goats. <gasps> oh, boy. Ooh. Like it they've done it 50 million times before. Like no problem. And just the sound. Oh, dear. At it, right?
0: Woo. Okay, right, I think we've I done like, that.
1: I also, I like I like to eat that goat. Uh, so I got to face this, right? It's Anyhow, true. Conscientious meat eating is good. You have to, I have to look, I have to be able to look my dinner in the face, as they say, right? So uh, I think
0: we've painted a very good picture of what these mm-hmm. wet markets are like. And all signs point to... The infections transmitting from the animal to the humans yes. in in these wet markets. Yeah, As I don't. I don't think we know a hundred percent for sure, but people are are quite scientists and researchers are quite confident that that's where yeah, it happened. They, they
1: seem to have narrowed it down, in fact, specifically to a bat or this other intermediary. Have you mm-hmm. seen the photo of that creature with the shells yes. on the outside? Yeah. Woo! So
0: Amazing. the so the interesting thing here is. I think it's would be very easy to just point a finger at the wet markets and say, that's the problem. Yes. And this is, you know, get we don't, those, and th- those don't look right. Yeah. We don't do those here. So clearly, if we just get rid of those, that'll right. solve the issue. And the really interesting thing about this Guardian article is it takes a step back. Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, these wet markets have been around for a long time. Why is it just now that that's this it. is happening? And it says the more important question to ask is not how did it transmit from animal to human, but how did they, these viruses first develop? Where did the animal get it? Yes. And why? Mm-hmm. And it theorizes, and it's a, it looked like a pretty strong theory from what I could see. They built I... a solid argument that really factory farming mm-hmm. is what is to blame, and big
1: farming. Um, It, like... I had had I've had my suspicions about this, mm-hmm. right? Ever since this virus hit, me thinking to myself, this has to be connected to like sort of mostly arrogant human behavior somehow, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> somehow, how did we do this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I hadn't made that connection just yet, uh, and so I wasn't entirely sure. And so this to me this connected all the dots. Okay, right? and I was like, aha. That's it. These are the links that I didn't have. Right. Because everyone was like, it was a bat. It was a bat. Chinese people eat bats. And that's the problem, which is not at all the issue. Right. It doesn't. The medium does not matter as much in is only there's this bird thing, which is, you know, what I mean, this is pretty important. But my question was, how did the bat get this thing? right? The bat didn't generate it. The bat got it from somewhere. And that's really where the conversation needs to start, I think, right? I loved that.
0: So in this article, of course, they spent some time lingering on poultry farming, mm-hmm. inspired by a book called Big Farms Make wasn't Big it, Flu.
1: Wasn't <laughs> it so great? I was what like, a dramatic I like title. I need to get my hands on that book. It yeah. sounded
0: like your kind of book. And so they uh, explain that, you know, with all these chickens and or, or whatever fowl it is in close quarters first of mm-hmm. all they're all on top of each other so mm-hmm. that makes virus transmission easier and secondly which I found very interesting they're bred to be you know genetically very similar to have lots of meat on their bones I don't you know whatever other traits they look for minimal fat A minimal fat uh, right all the leanness
1: probably exactly they're it. looking
0: for well tempered ones I'm guessing yeah, you know yeah uh and the way viruses spread or don't spread have to do with genetic mutations, right? So yes. that's sort of what keeps viruses in check. And a lot of scientists have proven that if you have a, a bunch of hosts that are all genetically very similar, that allows the virus to just thrive right. yes. and to continue to mutate and continue to mutate and become something really powerful and scary. Right. Um, and then add to that the fact that these factory farms are pushing small farmers out into remote areas. Oh man, that where big one, right? Yeah, yeah. the you know you know the land is less fertile, the so the larger companies the are not interested are, right? in. Yep, yeah. um, and those farms are often near forests, and that's where the bats are. So we were starting to put you know connect the dots. So to speak,
1: it's so, it, it makes a lot of sense right there. The two pieces that I loved so much was this um, this the clear link between the emergence of highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses and intensified poultry production systems. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That is super important because the timing, even they actually they quoted some timing, which said that the redu- you know uh, what oh, they talked about uh, the horses, Right. And that when horses were the mode of transport before cars, Mm -hmm. horse, uh, humans were more susceptible to diseases that horses carried. Yeah. Right. And then the, the advent of the motor car meant the reduction in the horse, which simultaneously coincided with the rise in poultry farming. Yeah. Right. So that we just on average, we don't realize it. But so much of what we consume is around a lot of densely packed birds. Yeah, and uh, I love the. <laughs> right? I don't know if
0: you caught this quote, but uh, I loved the sentence: "Chicken isn't cheap if it costs a million lives." Yes, because a lot of what they're doing is cost-cutting yes! measures, and yes,
1: for efficiencies. Right? Yeah, and uh, for efficiencies, and
0: uh... I guess when the birds have these viruses, if it doesn't affect their meat production or their egg production or whatnot, then they, you know, they don't really feel they need to do something about it. Yep. And meanwhile, the virus is getting more and more virulent in the population until it's, you know, able to, uh, I don't understand what it is, but there's a, you know, a virus has to have certain specific traits to be able to be passed on to right. humans.
1: ready to move over, right. So
0: it develops that mutation or whatever that uh, extra piece is. And then, you know, off to it's- the wet market we go.
1: I... Um- I had been thinking about this and I found another piece. Actually, I think it might have also been The Guardian. Thank Mm -hmm. you, The Guardian, if you're listening. Uh, a reduction in, that said that a reduction in biodiversity is what creates the conditions for viruses like yep. this to grow right and obviously the the food justice advocate inside of me is like yes let's talk about that you know what i mean connecting it to biodiversity is where we have a connection to human behavior right because it's our hands that are eliminating you know slowly eliminating biodiversity um, and that is the piece because they're Uh, There's a quote here that says that if a virus gets introduced into such a flock, a flock that that has birds that are almost near genetic clones of one another, Mm -hmm. right, is the idea. If a virus gets introduced into such a flock, it can race through it without meeting any resistance in the form of genetic variants that prevent it from spreading. Right. So genetic biodiversity are walls that will prevent this virus from continuing. It's walls that the virus will literally hit up against.
0: Right. And it's the polar opposite of what you mentioned off the top of this conversation, which is people pointing to China and saying, you guys eat all kinds of weird things and bats. And it's just it's actually the it's the lack of it's the opposite end. The people who are minimizing the, the variety and focusing the very, on making exactly. many, many of the same thing, yes. that
1: appears to be where the issue is arising. That's it. That's it. Right? So, Chasing boneless, skinless chicken breast. So while uh, you
0: were connecting the dots and feeling a sense, can I say a sense of vindication? Would that be fair? Yes. Uh, I went into overwhelm and yeah. concern because I really don't see what the solution is. And the other piece of this article, it was just a short piece So it was easy to miss, Mm -hmm. but they did mention that everyone's pointing their fingers to Chinese policy and how Mm -hmm. that needs to be, uh, you know, addressed. But a number of these poultry farms are not even owned by the Chinese. Yes. So they mentioned that uh, one, just as one example, a U.S. company called Goldman Sachs,
1: bought they bought
0: bought 10 poultry farms uh, for $300 So that tells you these farms are not small. No. And at, at that all. point, I just don't, I don't know how it works, who's actually making the decisions. And mm-hmm. if it's someone who's making the decision from far away, it's a lot even easier to, you know, ignore a virus that's yeah. going through a chicken population that, you know, isn't affecting the meat. And does and can't be can't be transmitted humans, through eating them?
1: Right. And the humans who are affected are far away. Yeah. Right? They're far away. It, like, I have to say, as somebody who has been running through the streets with a megaphone about uh, paying attention to our food system, yeah. there is vindication, albeit very dire, intense circumstances, but there yeah. is vindication in the fact that, that, that this is a tool for me now to say this is just, the stakes have just gotten higher on our distorted and dysfunctional relationship with our food.
0: So, Josh, I have to tell you a story. Okay, let's hear it. And it's a story about cilantro.
1: Yeah, yeah, talk to me.
0: And this story starts when I was 18. I moved to Montreal to go to school. Mm-hmm. And one day I went for fall. Okay. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Toronto, they make fall with basil on top. Yes. And in Montreal, the trend is to put cilantro. Oh, I didn't know that. Top.
1: I didn't know that. Okay.
0: You know how there's those moments, uh, culinary moments that are just impressed in your memory? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is one mm-hmm. of the big ones for me, was okay. sitting down in front of this soup, tasting this pho, and having this amazing, delicious flavor in my mouth that I had never experienced okay. in my life. Okay, And I remember coming back so excited at, at the winter holiday. And talking to my mom and saying, I have discovered this amazing rare herb and it's called cilantro.
1: <laughs> and my mom's proclamation that's amazing.
0: Well, I assumed it was this you know really rare thing, especially because I'd had fought in Toronto many times, right? Of course, and hadn't okay. come across it. My mom just looked at me and she said, No. Centro is very common. <laughs> the only reason that you have not had it is because it tastes disgusting
1: to me. Right. Okay. Your mom's got it. Okay.
0: So I was initially horrified because how could anyone not find this flavor? Right. Spectacularly delicious. Mm-hmm. But then I learned what we now know, which is it's uh, genetic. Yes. Some people actually have a gene. It's called O R. Six A two. Yes, about four to twenty one percent of the population have this gene, and it makes cilantro taste like soap.
1: Yeah, and even smell like it. Right? It said like this: the everything, just their whole, the, whoever's got this thing has this recognition of soapiness uh, with cilantro, which is uh, I don't have it. It sounds really not fun, but it is really and and it's like the it is such a black and white thing that I feel like. Uh, quote like cilantro is the is the benchmark that things are you know you either hate him or you love him he's like cilantro I don't know of any other food that's this polarizing um and it I mean uh, there are
0: foods we like and don't like and there's gray zones but this is actually a genetic
1: that and nothing I have never encountered anything else that has been backed up by the science like this right that, that is mm-hmm. beyond personal preference Right? Yeah. It is definitely. And so when I read this piece. Uh, obviously because i am deep in it with my own smelling mm-hmm. they what the thing the the conclusion they were making though is that these folks who do experience the soapiness might be smelling more like the, the you know what i mean they they have what they're calling hyperosmia compared to my yes. anosmia right they're hy- they're like super duper smellers who are and they're catching more than they need to which is where perhaps people are suggesting this soapy experience is coming from which is interesting
0: yeah, that's why this particular article drew me in. Because I think that genetic connection was made a while back. Right. But I never realized that it could be an indicator that someone is a super taster. That's it. And they have these heightened ability. I never associated cilantro tasting like soap being a positive. That like exact a, one. a sign uh, of something. Right.
1: A sign of, yeah. Of, of superior. Having a, a greater kind of, yeah. skill. Yeah. So... That In the piece you sent, they, met, they mentioned a study, right, where mm-hmm. they sort of mentioned the prevalence of cilantro dislike yes. across the world. And I was like, I want to know more. So I went and dug around and read through the first few bits of that study. Mm-hmm. And one of the most hilarious things was revealed. And that was that they did... Um, they have subjects from various parts of the world and they have, they're measuring the prevalence of dislike. Okay. Of cilantro. The prevalence mm-hmm. of dislike of cilantro. Um, 17% Caucasians, 14 Africans, 21% East Asians. Hmm. Uh, curiously, Europe does not appear to be here. So I'm not sure where Europe falls. Uh, however, the the really key numbers are uh, South Asians, seven percent dislike, much lower Hispanics, four yeah. percent, and Middle Eastern uh, Middle Eastern folks, three uh, percent. That right? is interesting. And so, automatically, in my mind, I was like, there has got to be a connection between the cultures who use a ton of this stuff in their cuisine, and this dislike. Right. right. It's not this. The, the this study is proving that. Right. Mm-hmm. Indian, South Asian food, um, so, so Hispanic so Latino food. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And uh, Middle Eastern food are full uh, of cilantro <laughs> because <laughs> more
0: of them appreciate
1: the flavor. Well, th- oh, I mean, there's this beautiful chicken and egg conversation. Is it yeah, of course what the ground offered up? Is it that these are the people that like this food? Do these people like this food <laughs> because that's where it grew? Like, that
0: the that the super tasters just didn't make
1: it, right? Uh, and then, when we think about this super taster piece, if yeah, the larger percentage of people with dislikes towards uh, cilantro are people who are from cultural regions or geographic regions that don't really use the food. But those are, in fact, if they're if those people are now considered super tasters, it really says something about what our tasting benchmarks are.
0: Let's talk about keeping a varied diet. Yes. Because I came across this article and it clarified something for me that I thought was very interesting. Because Mm -hmm. I, of course, try to have as varied a diet as possible. But my breakfasts are always the same. I always have Mm -hmm. the exact same thing for breakfast. And what I thought was really interesting in this article is they specifically talked about breakfast and they said, you you don't really need to worry if you have oats for breakfast every morning or toast, it doesn't really matter what you, because we're just talking about different kinds of cereal grains. Mm -hmm. And starch, yes. And where it's really important to vary your diet is to vary your natural foods. So Mm -hmm. your seeds and your vegetables and your fruit and the idea that... As we all know, these each contribute different nutrients, and you want to make sure, uh, I think you mentioned in a previous episode, to have a, a rainbow on your mm-hmm. plate. That's how we teach kids, yes. <laughs> I think it was when we were talking about the food guide.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. It. Uh, I love this piece uh, because it was a, a like confirmation of something that I'd been sort of rolling around with. Um, it reminded me of a moment uh, a few years ago when I was planting seeds in my apartment to to grow into little sprouties that would then go out onto the balcony and grow all sorts of kale and tomatoes and all these nice things. Yum. A farmer pal was visiting and she was watching me sort of lovingly planting all of these seeds and just super casually in her conversation, she says to me, oh yeah, vegetables are how we get nutrients from the earth. Huh. Right? And I looked at her and I was like, what are you talking about, woman? And it has stuck with me ever since because I had never understood this this way, right? I had never understood that there were nutrients in the core of the earth that we live on and that vegetables and the food that we grow on the land is the delivery mechanism for this and that each thing, each vegetable, each fruit looks different because it carries different nutrition, And so the reason we need to eat a varied diet is so that we maximize the nutrition that we are getting in from the earth to essentially keep us alive. Right?
0: That's a really cool way to think about it. You know, I've always thought, oh, there's different vitamins and different minerals and different different foods and sort of left it at that. But I really like this idea of the nutrition coming from the earth. It's a very sort of primal Wonderful. That's exactly
1: it, right? And it really makes you think about people, about why we'd advocate for eating food that's not covered in pesticides. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it makes a bit more sense when you understand what the original purpose is, right? It's I find it super helpful to reposition your perspective.
0: It was particularly nice to tuck into this article and to know that these two nutritionists
1: also feel the same right. way. It was that. Totally. And in fact, I was, I was delighted because I, I realized when I read the piece that one of the two folks who had authored it is, is Mark Bittman. Wait, who's uh, that? Right. Mark Bittman is a big deal of a dude. He's a food writer, New York based, uh, perhaps most famous for a series of cookbooks called how to cook everything. I've and never he heard works, of those. He is tremendous. He's, he really is an ally huh. of all things, good food. Um, and so, and he really is uh, pushing to work, to help people. Uh, understand more how to eat. Nice, right? Uh, and so, in fact, last year sometime, he and somebody else—I can't remember who—wrote this like definitive tome of an article called "How to Eat," and it was like a, a beautiful, almost like a like an interview style with with uh, answering questions about keto diets and paleo diets and and dairy free and gluten free and vegan and and what's healthier and what's not healthier and how we understand values right amongst all of this and it's. that's an article i'd like to read you should and in fact perhaps our our listeners would as well so maybe we'll put that up on the website on this episode's uh, page uh, and so that we can share it with others because i trust him as a source uh, and i think you'd really appreciate having sort of a definitive word on these issues
0: oh yeah oh i can't wait to read that we'll put it in the show notes awesome
1: Okay, my dear, you sent uh, over this piece about how much do you need to know about brewing beer, uh, right? And uh, and it was this awesome bit that really went deep into historical ale production and brewers in uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, right? Essentially, to where we are, it's like the UK and other parts of Europe. Belgium, right, was mentioned and the Netherlands, um, but there. It, it it solicited so many responses for me, right? This is a very uh, prolific conversation. Uh, and so I'd love to know, I want to know what you think about this beer thing. And then I'll tell you about how I feel the connection to the kitchen uh, is involved. But tell me what you think, because I don't know enough about beer.
0: I'm glad that there's a kitchen connection there. I yes. suspected that you would have some thoughts mm-hmm. and opinions. But yeah, so the this all started, it's, quite a conversation that's going on online and it started with a blog post that was written called uh, five breweries, every serious beer fan should visit. Yes, And this particular list was all European breweries and Mm -hmm. it was all old school European breweries that have been doing uh, very specific things like floor malting or uh, open fermentation. These, these techniques that, Mm -hmm. Uh, have since been replaced by more modern techniques but these breweries have stayed and they've been doing the same thing for years and years and years and in the introduction this article basically said you know to really appreciate beer you have to go back to its roots and right now in North America things are a little bit insular and we are valuing innovation over Mm -hmm. craftsmanship. Right. And uh you know not surprisingly it ruffled a few feathers right <laughs> this notion <laughs> now in terms of where I stand yeah what do you think I agree that craftsmanship has been lost okay for sure and I don't know if we could point only to the fact that people don't have experience with. Uh, a large number of breweries in terms of travel. Certainly for myself, from my early days in beer, I saw travel as a necessity. Mm-hmm. It, even in days where I could barely afford it, for me, if I wanted to understand German beers, I had to go to Germany. If I wanted to understand sure. Belgian beers, I had to go to Belgium. That's just temperamentally where I was at. And it is possible that those experiences are what have colored my view Mm -hmm. but there are other factors and I think it's fair to say that right now we it's really innovation led okay I mean just look at the beers that are out there it's like oh can we put breakfast cereal and beer can we make it sour Mm -hmm. can we make it bitter can we make it bitter and sour at the same time can we put hops in it but not make it bitter and can I we make it look like one you know there's a Blonde coffee beers now? Can we make it look like they do a little temple? And I think that's greatly driven by consumers. People Mm -hmm. want new things, new releases all the time. But I do agree that a, a downside to that is that the craftsmanship is somewhat lost. And that's one thing that I do notice when I go to Europe. I had this just spectacular experience. It was a few years ago. I hadn't been to Germany in an Eight years, I think, and I went to Munich, and they have a beer there called hellas which is a very light, malt forward, golden colored beer. You know, by many North American beer aficionados' sta- standards, probably quote unquote boring, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they serve it, but in this, I think it's a liter glass. It's a incredibly wow tall, big glass, and. I finished that beer and at the end I wanted another one. It captivated me. It had mm. these nuances, uh, which I can only attribute to craftsmanship. Okay. And I've certainly noticed here a lot of people saying, oh, this beer is amazing. That beer is amazing. And I taste the beer and it's really one note. It's like, okay, I understand this is a strawberry beer that has like really intense, real strawberry flavor but that okay. doesn't make it a good beer. Or I understand that this beer right. is exceptionally tart, but tartness does not a good beer make. You need the balance, you need uh, the depth. And the. I've been obsessed with this idea of craftsmanship since, I think it's been a few years now, I had this experience in Montreal. I was at a brewery that will remain nameless. Mm-hmm. And I grabbed a glass of uh it was a very light fruit beer it was like a wheat based fruit beer it wasn't sour there was nothing you know on the surface remarkable about it and I had a few sips and my whole body just said yes oh. yes and I happened to know the brewer and later on in the day he walked in and I said can you explain to me what it is yeah, about this what beer?" what did you
1: do yeah
0: and he said oh oh well this is a wheat beer that I've been honing for 10 years and uh-huh. that over these 10 years I've found a way to make it exactly the way I want it to taste and then when I got it there I realized that this specific fruit might be a good compliment so what I was tasting there was the craftsmanship totally right I was tasting yep this took 10 years of thinking and trial and mm-hmm. error you
1: were tasting this man's expert tinkering yeah
0: and that is something that uh is sadly very difficult to find here but I don't you know I don't know if I could point to travel being the solution I don't know exactly where the solution is because I think yeah. it would be challenging for a brewery to always make the same beer for an extended period in time in North America that's just yeah, not what because essentially
1: want. beer is a living thing mm-hmm. right that that should be uh, the variation should be uh, embraced but you know one of the things that hit me when I read this was I wondered if there was a like Old school, new school vibe mm. about any of this, like there is with wine, right? Yeah. Um, and is there um, a sort of roguishness, perhaps, with the uh, with attitudes of brewers on this side of the Atlantic, right? Because that's really where the conversation is being had. That's on where the question. Sides, that's what the question is. On opposite sides, yeah. right, of the Atlantic is. Um, Is is there this back and forth that they have with the like the you know you they look over look east you know those of us over here look eastward and say you are too steeped in tradition you are too inflexible uninnovative whatever whereas they perhaps look over the ocean to us and be like you are untethered uh, you know what I mean you're not anchored in anything you're making superficial senseless things that aren't that aren't proof of any real skill. Right. Right. And that that seemed to me to be a bit of the tone of this conversation. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's a fair comment. You know, is it are they not doing it because they're not aware of what it is or are they not doing it because they
1: choose not to? They're choosing not to. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's super fascinating because the same the same frustration exists in the kitchen. Ooh, tell me. Right. For sure. uh, When I think about this. The, the, the same craftsmanship that you're talking in the kitchen, in a culinary context, I would say that's about education and culinary school mm-hmm. and, and right. And obviously Escoffier and the French and all of it. Right. Because any anybody can agree about the fact that culinary school is not required to be a good chef. Right. Right. There are plenty. The same of thing. Amazing being- chefs. Mm-hmm. Right. Who have not set foot into a culinary academy and who are killing it. Yeah. Uh, so it is not required. I went, I did it. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that it definitely provided uh, skill and structure to the way I cook. It taught me a lot about just cuts and time. And, you know what I mean? To yeah. sort of really practical Time things. proven
0: methods. Oh, it, precisely, yes. right? Why it reinvent works. the wheel, yeah.
1: It works. Um, but there is a tension. There's a push and pull. Because I feel like I can make both arguments really well. I can say... It's not required in this because food is such a fundamentally human thing. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, you can have a chef who's who's doing a wonderful, marvelous job, doing beautiful cuts. You know what I mean. Whatever mm-hmm. they didn't get taught how to brunoise with the same diligence that I did. You know what I mean. Getting graded. You know yeah. what I mean. Whatever yeah. it is. Bottom line: Can you make that tiny dice? That's all. We. That's all that counts. Right mm-hmm. now. On the other side of things, though, I have had great conversations with other chefs in town, particularly chefs whose personal cultural background is not European, right? Which meaning that we were sort of put through the European paces in culinary school, uh, and now we've become professional chefs. We've been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. But there's this really clear idea that it's because we have that foundational knowledge that is now opening up Uh, opportunities for innovation right now, right? It is the, the remixes and the beautiful new, interesting nuanced things uh, are as a result of some level of mastery. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. We have mastered the basics to a certain degree. And in fact, I just watched a documentary about Miles Davis and he did the very same thing. He went to Juilliard during the day Mm -hmm. and then he played clubs in New York, in the city at night Right, because he was frustrated, but he had that mastery of skill. But then he, he, you know what I mean. He figured out his own way to do it. But you can argue well that had he not had that formal education, he would have not been quite as innovative.
0: Yeah, I think this conversation is well suited to music for sure, yeah. and to to many different areas. And for me, the interesting thing was really the fact that uh, there is a prevalence in North America towards innovation. There's very, Mm -hmm. very few breweries doing the other approach. And in food, are you finding there's a sway as well or is it really a balance of both coexisting?
1: No, there is, um, I think it's a balance of both because we see a lot of French restaurants opening Mm -hmm. up. And I've been surprised at how many French restaurants who want to stay as true to, you know, in Canada yeah. here, right? Uh, to stay as true to a classic bistro or, you know what I mean, whatever the context of a French restaurant might be. Without, uh, and and there's pride in the sense that there's nothing fussy and fusion and there's no you know, yuzu right. <laughs> or lemongrass, you know what I mean? Like, this is classic French flavor uh, and but, there's pride and comfort in that.
0: And do you feel that There might be a noticeable difference from someone going into, you know, crazy fusion, exotic dishes who has the background and someone who doesn't? Or would you think it would?
1: I I will say yes. Okay. Because I think that that it's 100%. And I still think that the most effective um, experiments are done when you're standing on skill. And knowledge, right? And we see that when we're like, okay, how can we do this? But we can give this a different flavor or do that. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how that cake works. You need to understand what happens with the eggs and the sugar and the, you know, Mm -hmm. in there. You need to understand what what it is about that marinade that's breaking down the proteins of that meat and will allow you to sear it in a certain way. And you can't just fling things on there to be different. Right. I mean, you can. But it's, I think it's a bit disrespectful and it's too much of a risk to take every time you cook something.
0: Interesting. Well, I'm glad there's that crossover there. I was wondering if I was going too niche with no, this conversation. No, it was a good one. There's
1: lots of ways this could have gone. I loved it. Thank you.
0: If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a rating or review. It helps others find us. Hot Plate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Original music by Dave Bell. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Theorology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.